Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Even if the details were never reported in real time, you knew instinctively during the chaos of the early days of the pandemic in the winter of 2020 that some people would get rich. Testing, PPE, government loans, PPP, small business loans, and all overseen by Donald Trump and his cronies. What could possibly go wrong? Obviously, a lot did go wrong. As a result, many died and many got rich. The pandemic, in a way, gave rise to a new group of American oligarchs, many with checkered histories at best, who took advantage of both the inherent corruption of the administration and its blatant incompetence. And yet the stage for all of this was set by mistakes made over the years by both political parties and even some politicians that had better intentions. Now, as the dust settles, the story of what became Pandemic Inc. is being told by my guest, J. David McSwain. J. David McSwain is a reporter for ProPublica. He was previously an investigative reporter for the Dallas Morning News and the Austin American Statesman. His reporting has spurred new laws in state and federal criminal investigations, forced lawmakers to invest in social programs, and won numerous awards. It is my pleasure to welcome J. David McSwain here to talk about Pandemic Inc., chasing the capitalists and the thieves who got rich while we got sick. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. One of the things that that you talk about early on is that regardless of the Trump administration, that a lot of the problems that set up the things that you write about happened previous to that in terms of not being fully prepared for this kind of pandemic. Talk about that first. Sure. Well, during the sort of Tea Party wave 2010, around, around that time, there was this big push to really try to delegitimize government spending overall. And, and specifically, the you know Republicans had vowed to really fight anything Barack Obama, then president, wanted to do, especially at Health and Human Services, which was going to oversee the Affordable Care Act. And, and as part of that, there was just, you know, there was this push and ultimately like the threat of a government shutdown and just across the board cuts, specifically at this at this department and deep down in the budget way, you know, way down where no one really cares about these things. Most of the time was funding for the strategic national stockpile, which is, you know, a bunch of warehouses scattered around the country that would store things to prepare for a pandemic or a biological attack. And, and basically this, this agency being held hostage over time, the funding was cut. Democrats, ultimately sort of capitulated and said, well, we got to figure out what to do with less money. And we ended up really sort of defunding the stockpile over 10 years, despite all of these warnings from various government agencies and even private industry. So even before, you know, before COVID hit and despite the Trump administration, which had a sort of disastrous response, we just were ill-prepared. When the pandemic hit, we had something like 1% of everything we needed just for that first wave. And and that meant that what few masks we had and things that hadn't expired had been distributed very early. And we were really left to the free market. And the response became led by the Trump administration to just throw money and contracts all over the place and basically put our national well-being in the hands of mercenaries. Why didn't the free market play a role early on during this period you're talking about? It seems that 
given that public health officials were concerned about what might happen, that this money was, was not being allocated in the budget, as you indicated. Why was the market or people in the market not taking advantage of what, what clearly was going to be a problem at some point? Well, in, in normal times, there's not a demand for masks like N95s, right? Like we, you might use it if you're doing some home repair jobs or you happen to be a nurse working in a certain environment. There is just not a huge normal everyday demand for those sorts of supplies. And, you know, I, I got to know and talk extensively with a guy named Mike Bowen, who was running a mask factory, a U.S. factory down in near the Dallas area. And for 13 years, he'd been warning the federal government, anyone who would listen, and eventually people stopped listening, that if we are hit with a pandemic, we are almost entirely reliant on China, and they're going to shut down shipments, and we're going to be totally screwed. And he laid this out in really stark and obvious terms. And in early January 2020, he saw his sales in this obscure corner of his website spiking. And he actually sent a warning to the federal government and said, look, I'm, I'm seeing weird, you know, th- this is weird. There, there's a contagion in Asia and my mask sales are going through the roof. We need to get ready. And he wasn't listened to. Was there anybody in the administration that had an inkling of what was about to happen in terms of the need for all of this? Sure. Yeah, there, there was a, a guy named Rick Bright who ran the uh, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development uh, Agency, which really very few people cared about until very recently. And he, he had become friends with Mike Bowen, essentially, and they'd been exchanging you know notes over the years. So he knew what was going on. He was trying to warn people. And then there was also Peter Navarro, uh, just a couple people in the Trump administration, despite the overall, you know, effort to, you know, downplay the pandemic. There were a few people who really knew this was scary stuff. And and one happened to be Peter Navarro, his trade advisor, who is sort of an anti-China hawk, but recognized that this was a major threat and we needed to get moving in what he called Trump time. And what he started doing was kind of taking over federal purchasing and doling out contracts to certain people. And, you know, he was, he was there, he was trying to get ready. He understood the threat and had a chance to really be a hero in this particular story. But just by virtue of being who he is and being in the Trump administration ended up, you know, stirring up controversy. And really engaged in essentially cronyism even though he knew there was a need for this stuff. Right, yeah. So in his, in his desire to really get things moving, cut, you know, the, the Trump administration's overall, you know, ethos, if you will, was, well, we're, we'll just do it the way we want. You know, we'll cut through the red tape. We'll do whatever. And, and there are reasons you're supposed to vet contractors, uh, not just fairness, but make sure we have a good deal and, 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 and avoid the sort of cronyism you're describing. He cut right through that and said, this company needs a contract. We need to do this. We need to do that. And by inserting himself into the federal purchasing apparatus, really created chaos and and definitely exacerbated the perception that the Trump administration was was picking favorites and not really doing what needs to be done. If the federal purchasing apparatus had been left to its own devices, what would have happened? Well, it still would have been it still would have been chaos. I mean, we weren't ready. And you have people who are used to buying chairs and paper clips and printers who are suddenly 
in charge of procuring life-saving equipment for our frontline healthcare workers. In, in a way, they're kind of on their own front line, and, and they're not used to that, and they have to do it quickly. So th- there was always going to be a little bit of chaos. Had we better prepared, that would have been mitigated. Had politics not seeped into it and, you know, just the, the general chaos that accompanied the administration, we might have put our money in, in smarter places, we might have wasted less time and we wouldn't have had just some of these really embarrassing stories that I lay out in the book of people who got major contracts and made the whole thing up and, and people who got major contracts and delivered stuff that wasn't usable or was subpar. When did it become clear that there were people coming out of the woodwork, like the people you're describing, like the issues you're describing, people coming out of the woodwork to realizing that there was money to be made here, no matter how crummy the material was that they delivered, even if they delivered nothing in some cases? Right. Yeah. So, so in your intro, you, you mentioned that, you know, in this hit, I think we all kind of instinctively knew, oh, you know, people are going to take advantage. And, and I, you know, I've, I've been a reporter for a while now and had covered you know, various contract snafus at the state and local level. And I I knew the moment money was coming out that there was just going to be widespread fraud. And I decided, well, this will be my job now. I'm going to look into this. And, you know, we started looking at the purchasing data and right away things stood out, you know, uh, companies with funny names, major contracts given to contractors who had no experience. You know, the story sort of sets off with one company I looked at, got a $34.5 million contract with the VA to deliver something like $6 million in 95. This is in April 2020. And this contractor had no footprint. You know, I was looking at public records, no footprint and no record of ever working with the federal government. I end up calling this guy and I say, hey, how did you get these masks? What's going on? How did you get this contract? And he says, well, I'm actually, I do have them. I'm, I'm the real deal. I'm getting on a private jet tomorrow morning to deliver them to the VA, uh, you know, the largest hospital network in the country. And I said, well, can I tag along? He said, yes. And, you know, next thing you know, I'm on this private jet with this guy who's supposed to deliver these masks in a really scary time. And, and as we're lifting off, he reveals, I don't actually have the masks. They were bought out from under me. And over the, over 72 hours, his story just sort of kept changing. And I realized, wow, we've really pinned our hopes on someone who, you know, uh, may may have made this whole thing up. And did he have tentacles into the administration or was he just a stranger that came along that saw an an opportunity? So that was the amazing thing to me as I was working on this story. You know, initially I was thinking, all right, you know, who's cutting deals here? What's going on? And and some of that did happen. And people with line to Peter Navarro, for instance, fared very well. But. This was so chaotic, it was so poorly managed that you didn't actually need deep connections. All you needed was an LLC and an email address. And if you emailed somebody at the federal government and said, hey, I can get you test tubes, masks, or gloves, they would give you a contract. It was that silly. And, and at what point do, or did it become clear to anyone that this process wasn't working, that it wasn't resulting in the materials that were needed? You know, it took a couple months. I'd say it was the summer of 2020 when not just the federal government, but states, cities, and hospitals who are now dealing in this market where they're driving up prices, they're competing with each other. You have Andrew Cuomo in New York, you know, talking about how it's like eBay. And 
things started to level out you know, people realized, well, we, we can't deal with these mask brokers, these people who are coming out of the woodwork. And at the same time, supply did finally catch up. You know, we started to be able to get masks to hospitals and so forth. And that's when people switched to things like gloves, you know, and then later it became testing kits. <laughs> and then it just became, you know, good old fashioned corporate opportunism. Um, so throughout, you know, the various waves of the pandemic and as we still endure this, yeah, there's a lot of money flying around and people who figured out how to get rich. And then, of course, there was PPP and then small business loans and, and the second layer of all of this. Right. So the Paycheck Protection Program, which was meant to keep businesses afloat and make it so that workers could pay the rent and feed their families, was it was just inherently flawed. It was designed with speed as its priority because we weren't prepared. We had to get money out. And, you know, and this was Congress that, that passed this. And, you know, essentially, you know, lenders would give out loans approved by the, the Small Business Administration, which a lot of them were, were forgivable. And the paperwork was very simple. There was no incentive to really dig into or, or vet anyone who claimed that they had hundreds of employees. So people very easily could lie on a couple documents and get millions, if not tens of millions of dollars within days. And we just saw this all over the country, people buying yachts, Ferraris, you know, paying off their debts from previous fraud allegations, mansions in Florida, uh, that sort of thing. And, and we're left sort of catching up to it. Uh, you know, this is an $800 billion program. There's been something, you know, more than 400 uh, people charged with defrauding it and, and counting. Did this program do more good than harm, even with all the fraud, the business of getting the money out there? Did it, did it really do more good in the long run? You know, I think you'd have to say yes. It's hard to quantify. I mean, we're, we're still trying to figure out exactly where the money went. I mean, for instance, we sent, you know, money to hundreds of fake farms, like farms that don't exist that somebody made up and we don't actually know who got the money, as I detail in the book. But at the end of the day, there were businesses that were saved while we lost a lot of businesses um, because people like barbers and, uh, you know, Uber drivers couldn't get money in that first wave. Um, but we did we did end up salvaging a, a lot of a lot of small businesses. So, you know, it was a necessary thing. It was just flawed and messy and people saw an opportunity to make money. When you look back on all of it, how much of it was, was corruption and how much of it was total incompetence and lack of preparedness? <laughs> well, it's a little bit of both. And, and as I talk about in the book, I, I think what we saw here was a very vivid display of who we are as a country. You know, uh, we really fell back on our worst instincts and this sort of blind adherence to free markets and our fierce individualism as Americans, which in the context of capitalism manifests this sort of this reverence for the entrepreneur, which in general, you know, I don't have a problem with, but that mentality coming into this where emergency managers say somebody should have taken control. We needed to direct supplies. We needed to get ahead of this. Our reliance on that really just fueled madness. And you add to that some corrupt behavior by the Trump administration, general incompetence by the Trump administration, 
which had sort of systematically demand, you know, uh, taken apart bureaucracy in general. And you just end up with this perfect storm of, you know, the, the worst parts of America being, you know, really acting out. How do the states come off in all of this? And how does our system of federalism fare as you look at the totality of what happened here? That, that's a really good question. So when you look at our response and our failure to address the pandemic, you have, you know, you can't help but notice that our policies and efforts were constantly undermined by states fighting amongst each other, not only over supplies, but just general policies like mask mandates. And, and our lack of cohesion created really 50 epidemics, right? You know, that none of us are quite working together. We're not going to get a handle on this because we don't have that cohesion. So it does, it does question that in, a, in an emergency such as this, our system of states' rights and federalism you know, can we really address something? But the other side of that is, would we really have wanted the Trump administration to have universal authority over all of the states, right? And I think I think the answer, any anyone who adheres to science would say that would have been even worse. So I don't really know the answer, but, you know, to be uh, idealistic, It'd be nice to think that moving forward, our pandemic response policy could remove some of the politics and say, you know, we need at least cohesion on some specific national measures. Even if the politics were removed, though, there's there's a lot of reason to think that some of the corruption would have happened anyway. As as we were saying, that, that this, there was a sense from the very beginning that corruption was just going to creep into this. Right. You know, I talk about this in the book. This is human nature. You know, these things are going to happen. And when I talk to people in Europe, we, they, they were astonished by some of the things I've, I've described purely because we don't have the outsourcing like government contractor or, or they don't have the outsourcing government contractor sort of mentality that we have, you know, privatization of everything. But this really is just private. You know, th- this is this is human nature. And you add to that sort of this, you know, American ideal, you know, one of the characters in the book I I talk about mentioned, you know, he's sort of grappling with whether or not he's a profiteer or he's just a good guy trying to deliver things. And he says, you know, this country was built by pirates, you know, and right now the pirates are taking over. And that's true. And what you had was an administration run by a guy with, uh, you know, a proven track record of, of fraud. And I think people, whether they meant to or not, sort of saw that signal and figured, well, I can get away with this sort of stuff. There's a lot of villains in this story. Are there many heroes? Oh, certainly. This this book is not about the heroes. Other people have written that book. Um, but there are some here who really tried to get ahead of it. And and one of them is Mike Bowen, who I mentioned, who was working in the mask factory down in Texas and really tried to get ahead of this thing. Peter Navarro came close. You know, he tried, but he kind of got in his own way because he's such a character. And then you have Rick Bright, who was the director of BARDA, who ended up being a whistleblower, who, you know, he recognized early, we need to figure out what's going on with the mask supply. We need to start working on a vaccine and, and so forth. And, and to the Trump administration's credit, Operation Warp Speed, 
did bring us a vaccine and it, and it was expensive, but I, I, I don't think any of us would, would argue that it wasn't worth it. Um, so there, there were monumental efforts to address this, but it, it could have been much cleaner and it didn't have to be this bad, this messy and this wasteful. Is there a sense that if this happened again, that that we would learn from this experience? So would we be going through the similar thing all over again? You know, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that. That's my hope. I, I really view this book as a blueprint of exactly what not to do. And, and we're still learning from our mistakes. We're not out of this yet. The Biden administration uh, in, in, in the president's State of the Union address, he announced a special prosecutor over pandemic fraud. Uh, there, there are congressional inquiries. You know, there's a sense that this was really messy. Let's learn some lessons. Let's write it down. Um, but at the same time, there are people who just want to move on and aren't really paying attention. So my fear is that, you know, we may be 10 years from now and something else hits. And, you know, those of us who remember what happened might have our own masks and be a little more prepared because we endured this thing for more than two years. But our federal government and the states and our emergency response apparatus may not have beefed up as much as we need. Did any of the profits blow back into the administration as far as you know? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I didn't find evidence of, I mean, there's a lot of innuendo. Kushner, uh, Jared Kushner, the, the president, the former president's son-in-law, who sort of inserted himself into this has a ton of business connections and there, there was a lot reported on, you know, sort of his relationship with certain people, but I haven't seen anything definitive that says, you know, this person in the Trump administration got X number of kickbacks. Um, you know, these are people who are wealthy and make money, you know, in, in other ways. And, you know, it's possible that exists, but that's, that's not something I focus on in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's that old phrase that behind every great fortune is a great crime somewhere. Right, right. And, and, and these are people whose, you know, great fortunes and great, great crimes precede them in their, in their fathers. So <laughs> uh, I don't know if they needed to wade into this bog. This was, this was people who were, were living their lives and, and sort of jumped into a frenzy. Were there specific individuals that, that, and some I know you identify, but specific individuals that really stand out as having made the most money through these various corrupt practices, as you say, yachts and 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 paying off, you know, fraud from previous attempts, et cetera. Uh, yeah, I mean, at some point I had to make choices of who I was going to include in the book and who I was going to ignore because it's that overwhelming. But there's one case that I got really close to uh, a, a company called Filikit which had been hired, it, you know, they, they incorporated and very shortly thereafter got a $10 million deal with the Federal Emergency Management Agency to deliver COVID-19 test kits. And at this point, we are lagging behind on testing. We're really paying the price. We can't get ahead of the pandemic because we can't tell who has what and where it's going, right? And this company was hired by our leading emergency management apparatus to deliver these test kits. We look into the company, they have no medical experience. The proprietor has a history of fraud allegations. He's been sued by the Federal Trade Commission, uh, you know, for robocalling schemes and so forth. And long story short, we, you know, we put it in the story. 
I get a call from a state health official who says, you know, I got this company's test kits and they're completely unusable. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, they're not actually test kits. They're mini soda bottles. Uh, they're called preforms. They're blown up with heat and plastic to create a two liter soda bottle that you find at the grocery store. And there's just saline squirted in them and they're sent to us in bags. And these are supposed to be hermetically sealed. These don't fit standard lab equipment. They're unsterile. We look into it and long story short, I end up at their warehouse outside of Houston and, and I approach the, you know, the owners and I can see they've got in this hot warehouse, you know, people working some with masks, some without masks, using literal shovels to move these little mini soda bottles from one bin to another, squirting saline and throwing them in a bag, putting them in a rental truck, which should be refrigerated. And we end up reporting this and FEMA ended up having to tell all 50 states and territories that they cannot use these test tubes that FEMA had sent them. But because FEMA had accepted those and, and ended up parlaying them to states, that company was paid. And contract experts we talked to said, well, you know, they were hired for a product. They delivered a product. FEMA accepted it. So it's pretty hard to make a case that they did anything wrong. But those were completely useless, and they set back testing all over the country. Is anybody going to go to jail for any of this? There, there may be more. Certainly in the Paycheck Protection Program and unemployment fraud, uh, you know, investigators and prosecutors are really catching up to that. Um, the... You know, one of the main characters in the book, the guy who invited me on the private plane, was ultimately charged with three federal crimes and, and pleaded guilty and, and uh, you know, is, is now in prison. The overlay to all of this is that it resulted in, in addition to the money being wasted and the fraud we've been talking about, people died. Right. Yeah. I mean, the cause effect, you know, stringing that together uh, is a, a fool's enterprise, but Amid this chaos, people didn't get the things they needed, and we wasted very precious time. And you talk about what went on with the nursing homes as well. Right, yeah, and, and that's, again, that was no surprise. Uh, you know, as somebody who's covered a lot of health care issues over the years, including in the South, nursing homes are a cash grab for private equity firms and, you know, companies who basically you know, they want to get as much money as they can out of programs like Medicare while spending as little as they can. That creates a bigger margin. And that means, you know, lower quality nurses, fewer nurses, et cetera. That, that already existed. And you send, a, you know, a contagion into that environment. And we saw it all play out. You know, it spread like wildfire. And these are vulnerable people. And they were dying you know, crazy. It, it, it was absolutely horrifying. But behind these events are was a pre-existing sort of exploitative, you know, uh, business. Uh, so I detailed some of that, and and I hate to say this, but none of it was that shocking if you followed the economics of nursing homes. And finally, were there many whistleblowers in all of this? People that that you found or that others found in reporting this story? Oh yeah, along the way there were certainly people who wanted to help me tell the story. And, uh, you know, I mentioned Rick Bright earlier. I mean, this is, he, he, he wasn't tracking down fraudsters, but early on had said, we better prepare for this. And because he wasn't listened to, we were reliant on, on some of these mercenaries. Um, I did find in the course of my reporting that there was 
a, a fascinating and weird nexus between mass brokers and the and the marijuana industry. And and you know these are folks who are sort of operating in a no man's land because federal law maintains that it's illegal, but states have legalized it. So they're they're used to working with private investors because they can't deal with traditional banks a lot of the time. So they knew how to get money fast and they had a tangential relationship with medical supplies. So a lot of people who were in the marijuana space entered the mask space and, you know, some of them, you know, were doing shady things, but I, I encountered one, she becomes a character of the book who, you know, ends up sharing with me all of her emails and this weird, uh, group she ended up in trying to procure these things is people are selling, you know, things through WhatsApp and, and doing weird things. So she, she, in a way was a whistleblower because she, she was grossed out by the whole thing. You know, she just wanted to, you know, sell earth medicine as she called it. J. David McSwain, his book is Pandemic Inc. Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you.